Greetings, this is Kurt. This is a continuation of the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments and questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to be a preferred audience member and help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you for listening. Episode 7. Uh, is my score. You want the score, mate? Two to one, our favor. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to let the game? Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is Episode 7. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. A short while after his test on the conjuring grounds, Gaywan was relaxing in the pleasant company of his chosen lady and his mentor, all enjoying cups of trisk drawn from one of Trimble's barrels and his cellars. During a quiet moment in their conversation, he remembered, I wish to call a wardmate. Recalling his tale of meeting Rothson's wardmate cat on the road to Foran, Flano was not as surprised as Trimble. Oh? This is a change. The mage's eyebrows went up with interest. <laughs> yes, I know what I said a while ago about them being nothing more than something extra to feed and shelter, but recent events have made me think... That you were correct? Muff perceived the insult and hissed defiantly at his master, his long tongue twitching in midair. <laughs> you know how my mind can be changed if I am shown truth. Leome, Rothson's wardmate, demonstrated things I had not even imagined where wardmates are concerned. Very well, then. Tremble cogitated for a moment as he sipped his trisk. Does this pose a problem? Oh, no, no, not at all. I'm just used to mages attempting the spell. Would you mind explaining to me what the difference is between a mage and an enchanter calling for a wardmate? I refer to the practice a mage must follow of duplicating conditions described in the tomes of spells. Here. Tremble lifted his hand and wiggled his fingers in the air. Do exactly what I am doing, Flana. The half-elf 
Are you doing exactly what I am doing? Flana compared her motion to that of Trimble's. I think so. He stopped and lowered his hand. From a layman's point of view, you were. From a mage's point of view, you weren't. Your feet were not like mine. Your hand was not at the same level to your body relative to mine, and so on. And if my motions were the spells for calling a ward mate, you would have failed in your attempt and would have to wait a long time before trying again. Wait for the psychic energies affected to settle. I presume there was more to manipulating magic than just gesturing. Actually, complex gesturing is not all that necessary. A lot of magic is visualization along with symbology involved in using the various materials, components, in spellcasting. Not actually. The main reason the path of pure magic is preferred by most instead of the disciplines of the inner power is the mental energy involved. When a mage collects his components, he doesn't have to think very hard. Not until it's time to mix together and concentrate the ingredients. Or what you scribe in the air or on parchment. Much like a cook matching another's recipe. Then how does an enchanter evoke spells if he doesn't use components? You sound like Gaewan did when he first came here. Good question. Did you prepare her for this, Gaewan? No. She does this on her own. Excellent. I love inquisitiveness. Enchanters use a language of symbols. The difficulty, and the reason many shy away from enchant, is the time required in learning the language and completely understanding each symbol. The most basic spell of enchant requires one to visualize no less than four symbols in three different orders. The simple light spheres. Flaina wrinkled her brow studiously. Did you wish to proceed immediately? That depends. Does the spell require a lot of time and concentration? I did just finish a test. Do you think I should wait? I doubt it. With your strong thought projections, your intent may have called your ward mate near. He grabbed the ring of large keys on the corner of his desk and headed for the shadowed aisles, then stopped and touched one of his keys to a shelf lock. Wrong lock. He moved down one shelf, and this time, as he touched the key to the lock plate, the entire rectangle of wrought metal gleamed with a faint light. Better. I've never seen that Flana's eyes were fixed on the glowing lock plate. Mm. Oh, you like that? It took me four moons to complete that spell. I deduced that simple locks would not keep out a determined thief, especially one armed with lock opening spells. What I've done is to make myself, my keys, and the locks components to a powerful warding spell. No one can gain access to these books and scrolls except me. I've always been impressed by this one. Why, thank you. Trimble, if you are what the Silver Council considers an exceptional mage, then obviously you practice and study the teachings of pure magic. Why, then... Do you advocate the studies of power? Very good question. I was not far from completing the requirements for being a candidate for my own staff of wizardry when I discovered the teachings of inner power. Unfortunately, due to my long commitment to magic, it was too late for me to change paths, 
without considerable danger from combining two separate philosophies. Very destructive. However, I did not commit myself to finishing the wizard's staff, thus leaving myself free to tutor the works of power, even if not use them. This is one reason I favor Gaewan and his progress. I betray my desire to be within his boots, instead of being the aging mage that I am. Witnessing Tremble's feelings of dedication not only to the teachings but to Gaewan as well, Flaina realized she was seeing an intimate part of their relationship. I understand. Thank you. The Keeper opened the case, retrieved a carefully rolled and bound parchment, and handed it to Gaewan. Here is the formula for the Wardmaid evocation. When you are ready, proceed to the conjuring ground. I will be working at my desk if you two need anything. Gaewan escorted her to a small reading table tucked in the shadows between bookshelves where he unrolled the parchment, called forth a light sphere so he could read, and perused its leaves. The Athenian fell silent with only the distant quill scratching and humming of Trimble busy at his desk. Flaina found difficulty understanding all the different terms in the wardmate evocation description, and was completely baffled by the line of non-meaning symbols scribed in the center of the last leaf. Sensing her frustration, all of these terms define the meaning of each separate glyph scribed here. Most of the unfamiliar words are actually from the language of the ancients, they being more effective in describing the energy involved. Like when you use elfin words to tell me you love me? She looked up from the scroll and squeezed his hand. Exactly. He wasn't sure whether to respond affectionately or continue explaining. She decided the matter for him. So, what are these symbols? By themselves, almost totally meaningless, like looking at each letter of a written word separately. However, like a written word, once you understand each letter, or each symbol in this enchant phrase, you understand the entire word and its meaning. Then you place the string of symbols on your mind screen in the three or four sequences described and thus invoke the channel of energy and the proper vibration. Why do you look at it three or four different ways? Kind of like looking at a statue. You can't just look at one side of it and know everything there is to see about it. The multiple sequences allow for the differences in each individual invoking the phrase. Thus, enchant molds to the user, not the user to... He stared at the floor blankly, and suddenly there was an insistent scratching at the outside doors of the Athenium. The pinch wing flew in agitated circles over the mage's head as he went to answer the doors. Flaina touched the enchanter's arm. His eyes remained glazed, a shudder evident down his back. Tremble flung open the doors. My goodness! Flaina stood and peered down the aisle. Snapping out of his trance, Gaewan turned in his seat just as a small animal appeared scampering towards him. Without a word, he lowered his arm to the floor and, quick as lightning, a small, longish, furry cat climbed up his arm and wrapped itself snugly against the back of his neck, its claws clinging tightly to his cloak. Turning slowly to face his consort, Gaewan smiled confidently with a gesture to the creature on his shoulders. My love, meet my new friend and wardmate. His name is Glink. Two big golden cat's eyes reflected the lamplight as Glink looked at the half-elf. 
Flana raised a cautious finger and scratched behind its ears gently and was rewarded with a friendly purr and a moist, rough tongue licking her finger. Gaywan, I have warned you more than once about evoking your incantations within the walls of the Athenium. Please pardon me, Trimble. I was explaining the symbology to Flana when I accidentally completed a visualization. Besides, he pointed to the furry animal staring curiously at the little man. He never told him. Muff, his wings in a blur, came to a hover over the mage's head. Yes, Muff. We have a new friend. With fondness in his eye, he stroked the creature's head. A mud cat. I haven't seen one since my cousin died. Yes, that's what they're called. I couldn't remember offhand. They're still being used in the outposts for killing snakes, as well as the usual mice and rats. Why are they called mud cats? They like to wallow? There was a distinctive snort of disgust from his new wardmate. <laughs> Please, someone tell me before Glink thinks of another insult for men. <laughs> that is interesting, to have someone's voice in your head like that. Their summer coloring is usually earthy, so they can hide easily. They tend to go after snakes after a hard rain when the ground is soft and muddy, easy for burrowing into a snake hole to kill its owner. Oh, I see. And they tend to turn white in the winter. This is when trappers hunt them for their fur, which is why they are so scarce these days. Oh, thank you. The mudcat licked his ear. <laughs> I'd better find something to feed this fellow before he nibbles me away. Chapter 8 Late the next morning, after a long and refreshing night of undisturbed sleep in proper beds, Enchanter Gawan and his four companions breakfasted heartily, discussed the recent events, and made plans for the days to come. Though they recognized that their newly found wealth made finding jobs less urgent, indeed, if they needed to find any at all, they also realized the enjoyment they shared in working together and were reluctant to simply break up and go their separate ways, especially with the threat of Calron seeking Kaywon. The problem, of course, was when and where another confrontation would occur and how to prepare for it. They figured they had ample time, several days at the least, before the Dark Mage might reappear if he so dared. With his name prominent on the Marshal's list of fugitives, along with a substantial reward for his capture, Calron would probably not be making himself obvious. Therefore, it was decided that they, as a group, would take their pick of any duties found. Such tasks would have to meet agreement with each of them, else it would not be undertaken. The consensus was no more bounty hunting. Having to keep an eye out for Calron would be difficult as it was without the added strain of hunting down another outlaw. For the immediate future, the five friends decided to make discreet use of their plentiful coinage and to purchase those necessary items that had been left wanting in past moons. Deciding to meet during supper in the next day or two, they went their ways. While Flana took Gawain off to the clothier cellars of the town's market square, Clava, Thasgar, and Gan headed toward a well-known trader's post across the road from the Brass Dragon Tavern.
that's Turbo you're wanting to be trading with? Don cast a dubious glance up at the familiar sign of the crossed sword and walking staff hanging over the veranda. He can be as greasy as a lump of hot fat. Aye, but he's got the largest stock of weapons in the old kingdom. And I'd rather see what he's got before I try the local armory. I've seen some nice stuff come out of his place. And to know him is an advantage over not. We should be able to glean the best of his stock. The dimly lit shop was empty of other traders as the three men shuffled and sidestepped their way through the cluttered room jammed with shelves, tables, and racks, displaying an astonishing assortment of dry goods. Used and battered armor lay in dismemberment like so many lost soldiers. Leather goods, saddles, aprons, greaves, and more were stacked in precarious heaps. Blades, axes, bows, and bludgeons of all kinds and in all conditions, nearly new or hopelessly corroded, jutted out from barrels or were haphazardly mounted and cross-mounted over the walls like some deranged armorer's nightmare puzzle. Woodworking and leatherworking tools shared boxes and surfaces, piled in tangles impossible to separate with the eye. Furniture, both rough-hewn and craftsman quality, was stacked in the corners and groaned under loads of clothing of all kinds. Candles of all sizes and shapes, enough for a festival, peered out of boxes or dangled from leaning racks sharing space with skins of lamp oil propped against lanterns. And here and there could be discerned the odd barrel of aging ale. Even the unpainted plank walls were liberally decorated with whatever would hang. Cloaks for all seasons hung heaped on hooks and nails bending under the weight of too many. Tarpaulins and weather-worn flags lent splashes of threadbare color. Underfoot and rolled into any available crevice were fine rugs and banners. The entire shop was a haggler's paradise, offering variety in place of what it lacked in consistency. Who's there? Oh, me favorite bounty hunters! The stocky, balding man lifted his arms in greeting. And such a long time it's been. What can we humble establishment offer you today? His plain garb, scuffed boots, dark breeches, brown apron, and dirty gray tunic, made him blend to the point of being almost indistinguishable from his wares, except for his shiny balding pate. I need a sword. Me old one is getting a wee ragged. Needs to rest for a while as it won't keep an edge. Swords, I've got a plenty. All you need do is pick one out and make me an offer, but... He wiped a finger under his bulbous nose and regarded his customer with interest. You know that already. Did you have something special in mind? The lanky bowman displayed his best-practiced sneer as he leaned over the plump merchant. Mm, better than what you usually keep out in the open. Clough, meanwhile, found interest in a bin stuffed with bunches of dried herbs and grabbed a handful to sniff. He noted several poorly harvested roots. Gon stood with Thasgar, keeping a critical eye on the merchant. Oh, now, the better swords come at a high price. Most people can't afford them, including you, me friend. So that's why I keep them tucked away. Don't want to be discouraging anybody, you know. He offered a comradely wink. Now, I'm willing to work something out for you, seeing as I've known you for so long. Bounty hunting isn't all that profitable, I know from first hand. 
Tazgar rolled his eyes, familiar with the plump man's yarns about his exploits in the wilderness. It was a shared fact among those who cared to know that Turbal, son of a sailor, set up shopkeeping in Hopetown after marrying a farmer's fat daughter. The two of them had been caught in an arduous embrace by her father during harvest time, one read, and, too happy to find a way to marry off one of his seven girls, demanded the two be wed. Finding himself with a pregnant wife and no immediate means of support, the young fellow wisely decided to put his collecting abilities to good use. Thus, Turbal, son of Boft, never saw anything more perilous than what his wife threw at him during their infrequent spats. Regardless, those seeking a fair bargain did not challenge or otherwise ridicule the merchant's tales of struggle in the wilderness, else they risked facing a price too high to meet. So I'll go easy, say, a trade of silver along with your old sword? Mm. Seeing the archer's quick frown, Oh, I'm sorry, Thasgar. I forgot this sword is the one you received as a deputy under the marshal. He reached out and patted the pommel tentatively. Can't go trading that away, can ye? Thasgar and Gon exchanged a wary glance. Swords such as his, with the emblem of the king's service on their pommel, and without a living owner, were scarce among traders and commanded a good price with the common folk, who usually made trophies out of the weapons and lied creatively about their courageous service to his highness. Traditionally, any such weapon was kept until death and then buried with its owner. I'm not here to trade. Thasgar shifted his sword away from the merchant's groping hand. I'm here to buy a new weapon. His eye wandered along the wall mounted with dozens of blades behind Turbal. Maybe something with a little more weight and a little more sparkle in the hilt. To buy? The plump merchant wiggled a finger dramatically in one of his ears. One of my ears must be turning blue because I can't be hearing you proper. Are you telling me you got the gold to trade for a sword with encrust and charms? Familiar with Turbal's method of insulting a customer's ability to pay to get them to meet his high prices, Thasgar was about to make a clever reply, but stopped, alert to the merchant's slip. Eh? What's that, Turbal? Charms? He eyed the stout man like a fox on a rabbit. Have you got a magic weapon in your greasy hands? He masked his delight with discovering an illicit trade with which to shift the usual turn of bargaining. Oh, no, no, not, not at all. Uh, being a farmer deputy, you know such a thing is unlawful. Besides, magic weapons are about as rare as a red moon. And in the unlikely event I did get one, I'd have to turn it over to the Magian Alliance, you know. Trimble, don't know why he gets them. I don't trust him, if you be asking me. Probably puts a wicked X on him so's nobody can use him but him. Mildly amused, Clough decided to see if he could nettle him further. Trimble's purpose in seeing the object is to ensure your safety. Eh? What safety? Turbal puffed his cheeks with an accusative glare, showing an uncertain prejudice with having to address Clough directly. He liked elfin gold, but not elves in person. Obviously, so you don't go selling a cursed weapon. Clough exchanged a conspiratorial glance with Thasgar, who winked back at him. Cursed? <laughs> Nonsense. Who'd want to curse a fine weapon? And what would you know about it? Doesn't matter.
Clough pretended to lose interest in the conversation, picking a fat candle from a box and weighing it in his hand. You're not a lawbreaker, so there's no point in discussing it. Turbo wiped his palms self-consciously on his soiled apron. Well, ah, uh, it might be a good idea for me to know exactly what this is all about, you know, just in case I ever happen across one. The elf turned an inquisitive eye to the merchant. Is there such a chance, Turbo? Just... He waved his pudgy hands as if at an irritating insect. Just tell me what you might know, seeing as you think you're the eye and mighty sage. It is well-known history that ever since King Cresden's best field commander was killed by a cursed sword, royal law has decreed that any weapon for sale claiming to be magicked must be verified by such a mage proficient at such detection. Of course, many ignorant people fail to pay heed and eventually pay the price. Thus, Turbo, you should exercise great care when purchasing such things. Else... Else what? You may end up with a curse on your head. Turbo probed the elf's eyes with a mixture of skepticism and trepidation. <laughs> Ridiculous! His eyes roved around the cluttered room, his brow glistening with sweat. A tale for scaring naughty children. You old fool! Thasgar pounded his fist on the counter. Show me this sword you deny! Uh, as long as I don't try to sell it, I don't have to let anyone see it. But you bought it, didn't you? And I still have the power of arrest. Oh, please, please, I only want to make a simple life as a humble trader. This is stupid. All you wanted was to buy a new sword. And by our traders more than usual nervousness. Clough crossed his arms judgmentally. I'd say he's hiding quite a blade. Thasgar straightened and rocked on his heels. Well, if that's the case... We can take our gold somewhere else. I'd better go and get the marshal and let him deal with the fellow. Yes, I'd like that. It's been quite a while since I've seen a dishonest merchant in the town stocks. All right, all right, you win. I'll show it to you. He shuffled resignedly from behind his counter and went to the outer door. After peering out to see if anyone was near, he carefully closed and locked it, then pulled the shutters of his one large window closed, plunging the shop into the fitful illumination of the rafter lamps. Returning to his counter, he reached under and gingerly brought out a long, heavy bundle of ragged cloth, dropping it suddenly as if burned. A tarnished sword fell out of the rags. Gon stretched up on his toes to see. Mmm. It was a bastard sword, the hilt plated with gold and encrusted with three small red gems and engraved with ornate glyphs. Though it was in serious need of cleaning and polishing, the blade's edge glinted sharply. And what is this, Turbo? A magic hand and a half blade? I, I feared discovery when I traded for it last moon, but the old fellow seemed honest. Thasgar leaned over the counter and stared hard at the plump little man. All I want is a fair trade for a good weapon worth my gold. All right. Well, what was this fellow honest about? That it was magicked or just a good bastard? 
Uh, well, uh, nothing particular, really. He mopped his brow with a handkerchief and started to relax. He just pointed out all the gold plating and engravings and such, and hinted that it might be charmed, but it, he didn't really know. I see. Thasgar supposed the traitor was just a fool after all, and moved his hand to grab the sword's hilt. Don't touch it! Huh? The archer dropped his hand and cast a questioning look at him. What? How? Unsheathing his own sword, Clough approached the counter and held his blade over the one in question. What are you doing? These elves always doing things unnatural. If there's any kind of charm or magic ingrained within this sword, it will react in some way toward the presence of another one like it. More so with my sword. What's, what's this? What are you doing? Relax, you old thief. Pretend I'm only culling through your barely adequate excuse for herbs. Silence! Stand away from your piece! Pulled backward, Turbo cringed against the doorframe behind him, his eyes fairly bugging out with fright. Silent and deliberate, the elf passed his blade back and forth over the other one, his expression revealing extreme concentration. The atmosphere within the shop fell still, as a subtle presence, that of an almost spiritual essence, made itself felt among the foursome. Turbal, aware of only the stillness, his face moist with sweat, jerked his head suspiciously from the counter to Clough and back again, waiting for something to happen. Then he caught the faintest of glimmers from Clough's sword, and he peered around to see where some sunlight might have leaked in to reflect off the blade's edge, but found none. Withdrawing his weapon and quietly resheathing it, Clough nodded confidently to his friend. With one hand, he lifted the tarnished sword from the counter, inspected it appraisingly from pommel to point, then tossed it to Thasgar, who caught it deftly by the hilt and quillions. Well? Clough shrugged easily. It may have had some charm over it at one time or another, but there's nothing magical about it now. <laughs> Trying to scare me with fireside fibs. Damned weapons indeed. And what makes your sword so much better than mine? Is it an elfin weapon like your fabled arrows? Or a man's weapon you stole? Nothing of which should be your concern. Thasgar weighed the weapon and swung it experimentally. It felt solid, worthy of a warrior. What price on this sword? How about his magic sword, or whatever he might call it? First of all, it's not a magic weapon. And second, I'd just as soon marry that daughter you're always bragging about before I'd part with it. No deal. To think I'd let me good name be soiled with that of a renegade. Simple elf. Probably unsoil it. Though he had seen the merchant's daughter. She possesses a beauty unlike that of her parents, yet is still just as simple-minded as they. What's price? Oh, yes, yes. Turbo collected his thoughts. Thasgar continued his sword practice, experimenting with thrusts and parries against imaginary opponents. Its weight felt good, and the balance was impeccable. Definitely a craftsman's work, but he wasn't going to share this opinion with Turbal, who was counting silently on his fingers. The plump man's price would be inflated enough. Not bad. 
Not exactly good either, my friend. Mayhaps. I don't know. Perhaps we should go to an armorer and not waste time with Turble. What do you think, Gon? Gear, Thazgar handed the weapon over for his inspection. Scowling over the workmanship, the dwarf made his own appraisal and whispered his estimate. Turble stopped his counting and curled an ear in an attempt to catch the exchange, then dropped his hand as Thazgar straightened. Something itching your ear, Turble? Oh, no, no, just, just, uh, what did he say? What's price? Ten crests, or a hundred and twenty gold pieces. <laughs> a bargain, to say the very least. You could get a dozen swords, an entire damned armory for that price. Ah, but an armory of swords like this one is not available in Hopetown, are they? Don't forget those gems in the hilt. It would take the Raven Point Forge a whole moon to make one of these. Now look here, I've got three crests on hand. Thasgar, don't go spending all three of your coins on this duffer. Four. Uh, Gon looked dismayed at his slip. Four? Turbo smiled. Aye now, there's a fair price. Thasgar grinned, enjoying the game he, Clough, and Gon were playing. They figured the sword was easily worth four crests, considering the gold plating and inlay work. Four? I, I think six is the minimum. The muck's getting deeper in here. Six? Three and a half with a reinforced sheath. Reinforced sheath? This weapon is easily worth half a crest more without a sheath. Three is more than plenty for tainted goods. Ah, he's right. You'd sell your own mother for less than three. Don't break dear sweet mother into this. I'll see you three crests with a sheath. The shop door rattled suddenly. The merchant wiggled his hands in despair and went to open it. Oh, maybe there's someone outside who'll see my price. Unlocking it, he peered out cautiously. Oh, good day, constable. Problems. A young man wearing a leather gambeson with a deputy's tabard hanging off the shoulder stepped in and glanced around, then waved in recognition at Thasgar. I heard shouting. Oh, just the moors of haggling. The door must have locked by accident. Did it now? The deputy winked knowingly. Um, yes, yes. And uh, just sealed a trade of three crests for a fine weapon. Uh, isn't that right, gentlemen? Three crests. Three? He must have betted a rich one. <laughs> <laughs> And with another wave, he moved on. After watching the street to see if anyone else was coming to his door, Turbo walked back to his counter. I believe we just made a trade, gentlemen. Thasgar nodded to Gon, who began counting out the coins, all three friends exchanging amused glances as Turbo tossed the sword's old wrappings into a rubbish barrel and poked through several reinforced sheaths for one that would fit. Mage Tremble gazed closely at the crystal in Gaylon's hand. Your first one was shattered by a specter on the road to Foran, wasn't it? Yes. The enchanter watched his mentor with the same intensity the other put into the crystal, seeking any hint of and I'm sure there's more to it than it seems, unlike a common lump of quartz or diamond that one could use for scrying. From Durbriag, King of Dragons? 
It's strange you give such a thing and not tell you of its purpose, especially if it be of such importance to his realm. Gawain recalled his confrontation with that first specter and how it had warned him not to interfere. And though Paul and Marie survived that terrible night, somewhere in the depths of his intuition he sensed there was more to come. Exactly what he had no inkling of. As far as he knew after he last saw them in the healing chambers of the royal palace, the couple was still in foreign, and he had fathomed no further urges to pry where they were concerned. Of course, being without a scrying crystal made it impossible for him to divine where or how they were, and remembering the specters, perhaps his loss had served as a safeguard of sorts. But now, there was a new crystal in his possession that might prove to be useful for seeing. If he ever dared to look in on them again, he wondered if another specter would appear and attack him. Perhaps ignorance of such a thing is best. The keeper of the Athenian lowered the faceted stone and eyed his former pupil knowingly. You wouldn't have shown it to me if you truly believed that. You know me too well. Give me a closed book and I'll open its cover no matter what. And I would think a demigod such as Durbriag, with powers of seeing, would know this fact. He raised an eyebrow. Out of curiosity, have you had it appraised? <laughs> oh, no, my dear teacher, I have not. Judging from the story of how Turstall and Whist reacted to the white sapphire cuttings gone collected, Clough mentioned they were nearly outdone. I would not dare reveal this stone. Besides, I care not for others beyond my circle to learn of this. Calron's knowledge shall prove a hardship if he ever finds out I have the very thing he sought originally. Very well. We've established that you want to explore what properties this crystal may have, something you are more than capable of doing on your own, and should, and that you wish to keep its existence a secret. What sort of help do you want from me? I can think of a place neither secret nor safe for the purpose of examining it. I'd ask to use a corner of the Athenium, but this place holds too much fragile material if I do happen to unleash a destructive force. And I certainly don't want to wander out into the local woods to experiment. I would be set upon by thieves the moment they saw this oversized bauble. Giving the crystal back to him, Trimble narrowed his eyes as he thought hard about something, made a decision, and slapped the desktop. His pinchwing, Muff, raised a sleepy head from where he had been curled up on a corner, his dorsal fins rising, and eyed the two of them critically, then wrapped his tail around himself and returned to his It's time you were shown an important secret about this outpost of the Magian Alliance and a perfect place for the sort of privacy mages and enchanters crave when practicing. Something Cowron will never find out. Gawain twirled the crystal idly in one hand. Only fair, I suppose, seeing as I've shared this secret with you. Precisely. Have you ever wondered why the Magian Alliance, whose purview is the young continent, maintain the sizable Athenium in an old kingdom separated from them by an ocean? Or why we have so many books and scrolls? How many mages do you suppose actually make use of this place and my services as a teacher? Now that you mention it, I haven't. 
I remember three other students when I first started lessons with you, but I haven't seen more than one other person any time I've been here. Yet this place seems like a necessary part of Hopetown, despite local prejudices against mages. Oh, the intolerance you've noticed is not all that common. Those few people who don't like mages and such are like the two mules in a barn full of horses. They make the most noise. In fact, Iwan glanced with perplexity around the large room. This is the only stone building in Hopetown, but it has a raised wooden floor like the Brass Dragon Inn's floor. Then looked back at his mentor. All right, Tremble. Why haven't I noticed the incongruities, and why does the Majin Alliance make their presence known here, when I'm sure Archmage Atare has more immediate concerns answering to the king on the young continent? You've never noticed anything unusual because of a subtle aura placed around this building. A spell akin to that placed over the entryway to the mage school in Foreign. Except that this one makes the Athenium blend into the background of the town, so to speak. Like making a tree in a desert look like a scrub. As for your second question... He winked mysteriously and stepped around his desk, motioning for Gaewon to follow as he headed down an aisle of books next to an outer wall. Muff woke up and tried to follow. Muff! Muff! Go back to the desk. Watch the door for anyone coming. Cradling his crystal in one arm, Gaewon followed, knowing better than to pepper his mentor with questions, confident that everything was about to be made obvious. Stopping at a particularly dingy shelf case empty of any books or scrolls, the mage gestured a hand in the air before it. Silently, the case swung out, revealing a small archway set in the stone. The keystone at the top of the arch had been carved into the figure of a small lion, poised to leap upon the observer. Tremble made a symbol Gaewon recognized as beseeching safe passage beneath the line. Apparently, it had been made guardian of the entrance and whatever was beyond it. Watch your head! He ducked through the archway. The enchanter stopped as soon as he stepped forward, a strange darkness in the Oh, and then focus some light for yourself. I've placed a permanent aura of night over the stairs. <laughs> His golden sphere afforded him ample light to see the steps, but nothing else. He reached out a hand to feel the cool stone walls as he clumped down the steps, reassured that he wasn't about to fall off into nothingness. Auras of night could be very disorienting, allowing only the spellcaster to see clearly. Twenty steps later, the darkness fell away like an ethereal curtain as he reached the bottom. Before him stood Trimble with a mischievous smirk, his arms crossed over his chest. I can see you've been busy. Not as busy as I'm going to be. The older man flicked two fingers into the air and suddenly light flooded the chest as twelve crescents along all four walls burst forth with flames. Stunned, Gawan surveyed the high-ceilinged chamber with wide. Each wall was stacked with hundreds, probably thousands of books and parchment rolls, most very old, thick, and tinged with deterioration. Large cloths covered more stacks out in the stone-flagged floor, and all except the ones closest to the stairs held a thick layer of dust. The air was frowsty and mixed with the new smell of the tallow burning in the corroded crescents. 
You are the first, outside the Silver Council in foreign, and our own Marshal Garnet that now knows of this vault. I wasn't aware of any underground chambers or vaults built when Hopetown was conceived. As I recall, there were barely enough builders for the Brass Dragon. You might also know your favorite tavern is the only supplier of Trisk, wine, and cured meats to the outpost villages in the Old Kingdoms, and that their supply never runs low. Clough and I worked for the tavern when we were younger, but all I ever saw was the small cellar for keeping the Trisk and cheese cool, not some great stockpile. Trimble raised a finger. Time for a new lesson. Uh, he leaned against the stairs. First, the facts as you know them. This land of the ancients, formerly named Felstar, once suffered a terrible holocaust that sent our forefathers scurrying for the then unexplored young continent. Eventually, we came back to start over in these old abandoned kingdoms. The well-kept secret, the facts you do not know, are that Hopetown, specifically the Brass Dragon, this Athenium, and the Marshal's Post, are constructed over the remains of what was once a great fortress. This castle was made to withstand the onslaught of man, beast, and the mighty storm gods themselves. Thus, the many vaults and chambers underground. This is the veiled truth about Hopetown, to hold that which was our forefathers so that we may reclaim our heritage. How many vaults? Three so far. The brass dragon keeps dozens of barrels cool in the stone chamber beneath its modest cellar. The marshal has stockpiled enough weapons and armor in his vault to arm enough men to fight a war, if need be. And we of the Magian Alliance guard these books and tomes, all that remain of our ancient history and teachings of magic and power. 1,400 riads ago, Master Enchanter Rothson's ancestor, the first enchanter to set foot on the young continent and special advisor to King Cresden, Master Roth encrypted directions to this fortress's location in the event our descendants returned to claim the old kingdoms. Obviously, this fortress, built to withstand almost any force, fell before the destructive storms of the ancient Holocaust. All that was left, as far as we know, were these three vaults. What if someone happens across one of the other two vaults, or even an as-yet unfound one? Trimble smiled again. Remember that lock spell you and Flaina saw last evening? Mm. That same spell is woven between the brass dragon's proprietor and the marshal. No one can use the stairways to those vaults except those I invoke as part of the lock spell. Gawan blew on his fingers to warm them, the air cooler than upstairs. I can see how Hopetown would be in serious trouble if we ever lost you. I'm working on that contingency. The enchanter shoved himself free of the noodle and strolled the length of the chamber, a good thirty paces. It interested him to notice how carefully placed the slate blue and brown stones were, their joining edges apparently flat, their mortar seams uncompromised by roots or moisture. This vault had not been simply built, but well-crafted. What about undiscovered vaults? These are the only ones that were ever found. If someone were to try and find another, they'd have to start digging in the street. Still, such a thing is possible. And if one was found, wouldn't these 
first three also be discovered? Trimble watched his pupil wander the chamber and wondered what it was he saw. From what we have found, the intended design of these vaults was such that each is unattached to any other, save one carefully concealed corridor mentioned in the old books. Gawan peered questioningly at him from halfway down the room. We haven't found it yet. This design was so that if an enemy ever did breach the walls of the fortress and find his way into one of the vaults, he would not have access to the others. And with the enemy's forces split up in their plundering of the fortress above ground, the defenders could easily retake it by using that single hidden corridor to attack everywhere at once. Fascinating. He approximated the number of pages in a particularly thick book partially uncovered by a cloth, and decided their forefathers must have been quite a learned group. Utterly fascinating. Indeed it is that. He patted a dusty stack. <coughs> but not for long if you don't clean up this place. Waving dust away from his face. I'm in the process of, of finding a trustworthy apprentice with whom the secret... <coughs> And this cleaning would be left. Gawan stood in the middle of the chamber, still cradling his crystal. But I'm still left with my conundrum, Tremble. I doubt you want me working in a place like this. One slip, one spark, and all this knowledge is gone. Oh, yes, I nearly forgot. He wiped his nose fastidiously with a handkerchief, then pointed to a large wood door behind where he stood. Over here is a spare chamber where you can work with your crystal. He pushed it down hard on the latch and leaned all his weight against the door. Rather old, of course. I'll get some oil on those. Noticing the enchanter's thoughtful gleam. Ah, what is on your mind? Now that you've shown me this vault, and I put with it the endless tunnels and chambers of a lost city, he shuddered at the memory of the dark place, never wanting to delve there again. I wonder about our forefathers and why they found it necessary to build so much underground. He cleared a few cobwebs out of the doorway. Hmm. The oldest history I've uncovered so far speaks of severe storms being a normal occurrence at least once each moon. Perhaps our forefathers sought the security and safety of the underground as opposed to something above ground that could be damaged or destroyed. In any case, if you're that curious, I would suggest you read some of the books down here. In time, perhaps. He quickly surveyed the smaller room by the glow of his golden witchlight, not wanting any surprises. As in the outer chamber, the stone in here had been expertly cut and laid. The wall seems tight and unbreached, and the lack of very much dust as opposed to the larger chamber gave testimony to this room being airtight. He wondered why. The only feature of the room was a waist-high stone pedestal standing in the center of the floor, carved from the same dark stone as the walls. Have you considered this room might be the access to that single connecting corridor? Otherwise, it seems incongruous what with being an offset spare room. The frosty smell was almost non-existent in here, a relief. Hmm. Yes, but I haven't found anything yet. This room appears as solid as the stones it's made of. The secret corridor's location has evaded me no matter what technique I've used to find it, magical or otherwise. I'm seriously beginning to doubt if it exists. 
The mage walked over and brushed his hand perfunctorily over the top of the pedestal. I haven't yet figured out why this thing is here, unless this room served as some sort of worshipping vestibule or votive chamber, and this was for their altar. Gawan nodded agreement, then was suddenly distracted by a psychic tug on his consciousness. Hmm, however, I believe it will serve very well for our purposes. Place your crystal upon it. Gawan. When the enchanter did not respond immediately, he looked up to see him staring blankly into a corner of the small room. Gaywan? He shook his arm. Gaywan? Blinking rapidly as if just waking up. Hmm? Uh, oh, <laughs> excuse me. Eyeing him knowingly. Where be your ward mate? <laughs> How astute of you. Glink is with Flaina, and she is in one of the clothiers deciding on different waist sashes, and... His, his eyes became glassy again as he shook his head at the wall. What do you think? This one or this one? No, not that one. Somewhere above in a shop in the town square, the half-elf watched with relief as the mudcat shook his head, then pawed his nose, and she had her answer deciding on some other pieces she had selected. Having the means to purchase the best, she had wanted to pick out colors that would please Gaewon, but was stymied by not having him around to offer his likes and dislikes. Are you sure? Not this one? Realizing the thought link between wardmate and enchanter, and having Link along for company in lieu of Gaewon, she had resorted to asking the mudcat, hoping to get some helpful opinions. Come out of it, Gaewon. Trimble squeezed the enchanter's arm. You must learn to control the impressions you receive from your wardmate. Oh, I do, I do. Flaina just needed some help, that's all. Irked with Gaewon's uncharacteristic desultory mood, Trimble stomped around the pedestal. I show a man great secrets and he frets over a woman's sash. And when was the last time you enjoyed a woman's companionship? The mage twitched his mouth back and forth as he thought about it, then waved off the question. Mm, that doesn't matter. Besides, who would want to be courted by an old man like me? Oh, I'm sure there's a lonely good wife somewhere that would enjoy your attentions. Trimble's level stare made him drop the subject. All right, all right. No need to get grumpy. <clears throat> I'm ready for the task. Good. The mage stopped amid a shutting the door. Oh dear, I've just had a terrible thought about this room. Oh? From what I've read in the few books I've deciphered, our forefathers were a terribly religious lot, and in their earlier days they upheld ancient traditions that included infrequent virginal sacrifices to their gods. That's a comforting thought. Gawon glanced around, trying to remember what he had learned about the ancient cults and traditions. I think this chamber is a little small for such a ceremony. I presume you're worried about entities feeding off the psychic energy of the spilt blood? Do you think they might still be present after all these sun cycles? Trimble shrugged. Assuming this chamber was ever used for such a thing, the stone appears too clean for any blood sacrifices to have been performed. He pulled the door closed and returned to the pedestal. Do you know if this crystal is charmed or magicked? Not really, no. It's just... He half-closed his eyes and gazed beyond the walls. Just a feeling I have. 
then I recommend you begin with something simple to see if there are any quiescent energies. Gaewan nodded agreement and placed the crystal on top of the pedestal, letting it tilt slightly as it came to rest on a larger facet. Wiping his hand free of the sweat from holding it for so long, he then held his fingers splayed a few measures above the stone, released the tension in his body with a deep breath, and closed his eyes, allowing a thread of psychic awareness to reach out to the stone. At first he perceived nothing, but after a few moments he discerned a slight tingling on his palm. Though less than a scrying crystal might radiate magically, it was still more than residual psychic impressions. Knowing he alone must judge what was real and what was not, he decided there was something there. How strong or deep he did not know yet. Coming out of his mild trance, he saw his mentor watching him carefully. There's something there, but it doesn't seem to be very potent. Don't let that fool you. Like sleeping dragons, magics can be shrouded or slow to react after a long period of dormancy something I am continually reminded of, even after all my riads of experience. He was remembering a twisted old tree root he found jammed in between two mortar joints of the vault's inner wall that turned out to be a powerful wand for controlling the weather. The root's uncharacteristic flexibility and lack of signs of age, brittleness and had captured his interest, and he had spent half a moon testing and experimenting with what his better judgment told him was nothing more than what it appeared to be. Rubbish. Until he stumbled upon the wand's purpose, command of the wind sylphs and air elementals. The heavy rainfall that resulted from his serendipity had lasted five days, causing considerable flooding in the lowlands. He decided not to confess his discovery to anyone, lest they made the demands for all sorts of weather. I have too much respect for nature's balance to meddle in her affairs, except when crops might require it. Then what do you suggest I do? I was hoping this might suffice as a scrying crystal, and now you're telling me there might be more? Gaewan was keenly aware of his own lack of experience in true experimentation with unknown artifacts, and he felt rather foolish having to consult with his mentor about something he imagined was probably trivial. Trimble cast about in his memory for all the magical delving techniques he knew of, then coupled them with the unusual source for the stone, the most powerful dragon of the heavens. The mind has a bad habit of ignoring the obvious when it is overwhelming, such as the peasant who cannot comprehend a powerful magic spell, and attributes the effect to something mundane, light spells being a trick of the eye, and so on. I don't understand what you're getting at. You're ignoring the obvious of which you have already been told by Durbriag himself. This gem is significant to dragonkind. Yet he has chosen to give it to you. And like the curious, mystic scholar you are, you seek to explore it. Am I wrong? I amaze myself with my own blindness sometimes. You are correct, of course. But this brings me back to my original question. What do I do? Explore, of course. Else you may not rest until you do. How? Tremble tilted his head as he regarded the enigmatic facets of the stone and weighed his answer carefully. Familiar with Gawan's ability to divine his own understanding and methods,
Woods with the mystical powers with minimal guidance, he realized the unusual circumstance of his question. This would not be an easy task for me, let alone anyone, and promises all the difficulty of locating a particular mouse in a forest teeming with rodents. I suggest eliminating any easy solutions and begin searching the crystal with your mental powers. This will fatigue you quicker than any other methods, but if you do find it to be a device sensitive to the mind and to magic, then you wouldn't have to probe any further. Oh? Why not? Because if this be a thing limited to the mental worlds, then you should leave it alone. Using it would be detrimental to your progress as an enchanter. Mm. And if it be a focus for power and not magic? Mage met Enchanter's eyes in grave earnest, the stale air of the small room suddenly expectant, then turned to look again at the crystal reflecting the witchlight hovering overhead. Twould be the first I have seen that did not assume the form of a weapon. You refer to Clough's power sword and the matching dagger he gave me. Only the precious relics mentioned in the old legends have ever been in the shape of something other than a weapon. You should tread very carefully from this point on. His mentor's abrupt intensity struck a chord of fear in Galen's heart, a wave of cold settling over his flesh. This is almost too much. I only wanted a new crystal for seeing, and now... Rational instinct is to bury the thing in an old grave and to forget it. Knowing him too well to disregard his statement, Tremble shared his feeling. Gaewan was getting scared. He remembered his first magic duel in his early days as a practicing mage, a contest he had not chosen willingly, and the lesson he had learned about trying to outguess the immediate future. One can never truly know what waits in the shadows until one steps forward. And then, of course, it's too late. If you so choose, then I wouldn't blame you. The ancient tools of power were frightening to behold when unleashed. The enchanter clenched his fists. But I can't just walk away without knowing something. This must be your decision alone, Gaewan. Admittedly, what you seek to do is outside the teachings of power that you have learned so far. Just know that nothing will happen until you change the circumstance. His jaw worked silently as he stared beyond his mentor and weighed his decision, eventually coming to rest on the old adage, The gods hate a coward. Loosening his shoulders, he looked back at Trimble. Will you assist me? The mage intertwined his fingers across his chest. I will act as verifying witness and keeper. If you release a force that might harm or madden you, I will attempt to step in and correct matters. What technique will you use? An oral reading method leading to its heart. Very good. Proceed. Gaewan stretched for a moment and took several cleansing breaths to clear his mind, dropped his hands to his sides, and brought the focus of his eyes to just above the top of the crystal as it sat untouched on the pedestal. 
Uneven facets reflected the glow from his golden light sphere hovering silently above his head. The effect coupled with its size making it look like a misplaced ballroom decoration. Peripherally, he could see where Trimble stood vigilant off to the side, the mage's eyes trained carefully on his face. Comforted by his mentor's presence, he quelled his nervousness as much as he could, realizing it would only prove a nuisance, and placed all his immediate attention on the gem. Moving his eyes along its boundaries, he kept his focus just along its edge, with the wariness a barefoot dancer might exercise near a bed of hot coals, then dared to glance at its center. Nothing. He repeated his visual inspection, trying to discern any signs of an aura enveloping it. Such would definitely signify an energy Satisfied that his gentle probes would not trigger any reaction, Gaewan relaxed slightly and carried his line of sight directly into the crystal's heart, blurring his eyes in the process. Then he glanced up involuntarily, catching a glimpse of Trimble still studying him closely. He chastised himself for breaking concentration and quickly reviewed the instructions for use of crystal and gemstones and bowls of water for scrying. Keep the eyes relaxed, thus preventing false images out of eye fatigue. And keep the mind in check, else a thought projection would interfere with sensing energy or channeling power. The faintest glimmer shifted within the center of the crystal. He resisted the sudden urge to look directly at it, keeping his eyes blurred. Another glint appeared. Suppressing the wave of excitement surging through his gut, there was definitely something there. He wondered if Trimble had seen it, then remembered his mentor watched him, not the stone. Coinciding with his thought, the glimmers were snuffed. Cursing inwardly, he tried again as he reined in any random thoughts. Then another teaching called from memory. Never struggle to hold the mind, just quiet it. Taking a deep breath, he released the shutters of frustration and excitement, then placed his gaze easily into the stone's heart. This time, several sparks of light appeared, thinking of Clough's sword and his dagger, and how one had to reach out with genuine awareness, as if the things were alive in order to get a response, much like extending friendship to a stranger. He allowed his consciousness to flow out toward the stone, reaching out with his sixth sense as if to touch the gem psychically. The sparks danced, beckoning him closer, becoming brighter and quicker, moving with the grace of summer's fireflies in a twilight sky. A presence brushed at his thoughts, almost tugging on his awareness. Gawan allowed this unseen essence to enfold him like an ethereal fog, pull him further away from himself. Suddenly, every facet of the crystal flashed with a terrible brightness, then went darker than deepest night. The essence became claws grappling at his mind. Unprepared for the attack, he tried to say something, to yell, but his body would not respond. Terror clutched his heart as streaks of black exploded outward from the stone, blotting out everything in the chamber. And then the floor was gone, and he was falling.
A Bridge of Doom, Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. The sound plays of the novel were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Episode 7 are performed by Richard Hammer, Darcy Aridell Hotelling, Jim Marshall, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel and its sequels, making up a quintology, so far at present, are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.